Hey, I wanted to let you know that today's episode is one of my favorite interviews I've ever done. I laughed and cried and I literally was sitting on the edge of my seat the whole time. This is a story that needs to be told and it needs to be heard. I am so very glad you've joined me today. So this is the second episode in the Transformation Project series. And today I talk with Tiffany Johnson. Tiffany is the author of a book called Brave Enough Now. This is a must read. You'll know that and everybody's going to want to buy the book as soon as this is done. She is a speaker, a podcast host, and an amazing, inspirational, and wise woman. Her wisdom and groundedness comes from life experience and pain, but she has let her experiences grow into wisdom, and that is so unique. She loves to cook and hang out with her sweet family. She lives in Australia with her husband, two kiddos, and two dogs. So Tiffany is a survivor of a canyoning disaster that happened in Switzerland, and I got to talk with her about her her life that led up to that experience, and what happened during and after that completely transformed her journey. You don't want to miss this. I know it will add value to your day. I'm Dr. Wendy Bruton, and I used to be a therapist. Welcome to my podcast. Each week, I'll be sharing life stories, interviews, and information that I know will be of value to you and to your life and to the lives that you touch. If you need a therapist or just someone who used to be a therapist, I hope that this is a place where you feel valued, valuable, and learn to move forward from what you used to be. I'm so glad you're here. Welcome, Tiffany. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's pretty exciting. You're in Australia, right? Yeah. Thanks for having me, Wendy. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, I'm so excited to have you. It's been fun. I mean, just chatting a little bit with you and getting to know you a little bit over Messenger, you know, but now we get to see each other. Yeah, it's great. Fun on Zoom. We get to see each other. It's like we get to meet. And it's amazing because I'm on the other side of the world to you. So I know. Thanks. I know you're in tomorrow. We were just talking about that, that, that you're in, <laughs> you're on the other side of the world. Yeah. Well, I'm down the very bottom of Australia. I'm not in Tasmania, but I am in Victoria. So I'm on the beach. Oh, I bet it's just beautiful there. It is. It's very beautiful. So I'm so excited for you to tell your story. You have quite a story. But before we get into your story, I want you just to tell us a little bit about you, um, who you are, um, who you live with, what you do for a job, all that stuff. So I am Australian. I live in Victoria, as we just talked about, on the beach, which is beautiful. I have two children. Um, I have a daughter who's 15 and a son who is 12. And I live with my husband and our two dogs and I love to do pizza night on a Friday night and make my own dough and sing to Frank Sinatra and have a glass of red wine and we all dance in the kitchen and it's like our family fun night (laughs) Friday Um, night. What do you put on your pizza? Oh, this is always very controversial, but I'm a big fan of a ham and pineapple pizza. Uh, Me too. All right. Yeah. Good to know. Yeah. Okay. We can still yeah. be friends. That's good. My husband's all over the salami, the mushrooms, the olives, but um, not that's not so much for me. Um, and the kids like the good old uh, margarita, very basic, and lots of herbs from my garden and things. I have a big vegetable garden, so which is really lovely. And I do love to be in the garden. It's very grounding. Um, and for work, I'm an author. I'm a podcast host. I'm a speaker. Uh, last year I um, stopped my business. I'd had my own business for eight years. I'd been in a massive car accident and had an injury. I was a remedial massage therapist and I um, was told I could no longer do that anymore. So I threw myself into my author work and that's what I do. That's exciting. I can't wait to hear more about that. I know we're going to hear more about that. Well, we get to hear your story kind of of transformation today. So why don't you, before the event that we're going to talk about, why don't you talk a little bit about what your life was like before this event and 
the expectations you had for your life, for your future, all of that before? So when I was about 17, I'd grown up in rural Australia on a farm and we had cattle. It was a cattle farm. And I think a lot of people go through that motion of when you're about to step into adulthood, you're about to go to college, you don't know what you want to do. And I felt like there was a piece of me that was missing. And I felt that in my small country town that I lived in, I just felt like I didn't belong. And I don't actually think that I didn't belong. I think that it was more that I was searching for the for all of me and I just it was those first adult steps and I really think a lot of people go through that as they sort of hit that massive transition in their life and I thought that my steps to adulthood would be to go interstate to university so I moved away from home and I started university and my second year in college I was working and I was standing at a coffee machine I hate coffee I can't make coffee (laughs) (laughs) I was standing at this, I still hate coffee, and I was standing at this coffee machine and I saw this man and he took my breath away. And I think that when you first, uh, when you're at that age and you first are experiencing all those different feelings and emotions, it's quite overwhelming. For me, it was very overwhelming. And within a week, we'd moved in together. We were in love. It was wonderful. And then after about three months, that wonderful euphoric feeling he became very controlling he knew where I was every minute of every day and it went from euphoric bliss to an incredibly toxic relationship and very Mm -hmm. damaging and I didn't see my family for almost two years I became anorexic I went down to 40 kilos Mm. I I lost every single piece of me when I was looking for that one piece of me and I had low self-esteem I had high high anxiety and we had a death in our family and I was finally allowed to go back home. And so I went home and I looked at myself in my childhood bedroom and I was standing there in the mirror and I had bones poking out that I didn't even know there were bones there. I was, I looked like something out of a concentration camp. I was just, it was terrible. And I just thought, what has happened to me? I can't, I can't do this. And I didn't know how to leave. I didn't know how to get out of this toxicity in this relationship and um, being with back with my family I started to regain my strength within myself again and so I drove back uh, 12 hours straight with a can of coke and a Mars bar uh-huh. <laughs> fueled and ready to go right. and um, and when I got back to our home he was in bed with two other women and oh. that was my escape I finally could leave. Mm -hmm. It was a blessing. And I went far away again. I ran away again and I thought that I would find myself on a tropical island and I was drinking too much. I was consumed with shame. I'd never told my parents the true nature of the relationship. I just felt that I'd let everybody down. I'd let myself down. I'd Mm -hmm. let everybody else down that I'd loved. I'd let my aunt down that had died. I just was... It was too much. I couldn't face it. I didn't want it to have been true. And the disappointment that I felt within myself was too much to bear. Mm -hmm. And I was walking home one night from from work on this island and two men started following me and I was nearly raped. Mm. And I moved on and recovered. And the next day my ex-boyfriend had found where I was and he called and I just remember that phone call and I could hear his breathing and I knew that it was him. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, if I take this phone call, maybe I'll stop him from coming to get, come after me. Maybe I could, maybe I could, you know, I wanted, I, I wanted my future to be better. Like you said, what was your expectations? I wanted to have an amazing life. I wanted to feel full. I wanted to be all of me. And yet I'd lost every single piece of me. Yeah. And then he said he was going to go overseas. And I thought maybe it's better the devil you know than the mm. devil you don't know. Mm. And fear drove me. And so I said, want to book a ticket for two. And so I went overseas with, with this him. horrendous man. And we got overseas and we're in the UK and the same wheel started to turn. Things were bad. Things were going to worse. And I was going through my backpack and I was thinking, how the hell am I going to get out of this? Like what what am I going to do? Why have I made so many mistakes? What is wrong with me? And I found this 
letter, this envelope, and it was covered in all those love hearts and little stickers and stuff, and it smelt of really cheap perfume. And I was like, oh, my God, I've got to know what's in this letter. And it was a letter from his girlfriend back in Australia who was married, who um, was thanking him for the ticket that he had bought for her to go and fly overseas and be with him. And I knew he had absolutely no money. And he had very cleverly and deceitfully managed for us to, and I'd made bad choices. It wasn't just him. I I chose to believe him um, to open a bank account together and he had taken every cent and had paid for her flight and I just went, enough is enough. I cannot do this. I cannot be this person. I'm not going to let me be this person that gets downtrodden and treated just so badly. Yeah. And so I left. And now I was on the other side of the world with no money, nowhere to go, no idea what was next and no connection to anyone that was there. I was completely and utterly alone. Mm-hmm. And so I made a call collect number, a phone call back to home, back to my parents. And you probably remember this, like getting a phone call from overseas was like, oh, so exciting in that. Oh, yeah, I remember that too. Yeah. Yeah. And and so I rang my my mum answered, I rang home and and I was hysterical. I was sure. sobbing down the line. I was a mess. And mum talked to me and she said, Go and book yourself in a nice hotel. Don't worry about anything. Get your laundry done. Go and get a nice cup of tea. And then tomorrow I want you to go and find a travel agent and I want you to go and book a Kentucky tour. Go and live. See the world. You can't have gone to the other side of the world and have had a terrible time. And so that's what I did. And I got to the travel agent and tried to book a Kentucky tour and no one could understand my accent and it (laughs) was just a nightmare. For those of you who don't know what Kentucky is, it's um, it's a, a bus tour group for young people ages 18 to 35 and in Europe in particular I know they have them in the states or they used to but um it's like a speed dating of countries so you go you know two days in France two days in Italy two days here two days there and um so within a week I got on this bus but I didn't have the right paperwork and I didn't have all the things that I needed all I had was my tiny little receipt and my passport (laughs) and it took me two hours to get on the bus because I'd done it all so fast. Everything was chaos and this whole busload of people were all friends, you know, all sort of 20, 21 were waiting on this bus, sitting there for two hours. And as I got on that bus, you know, can imagine the yahoos and the, yeah, you know, good on you, whatever. And I just, I thought, why am I here? I would, I think I'd rather die. This is not, this is not worth it. Where's the rock? Find a rock. I just want right, to just get under the under rock it. and hide. I don't want to be here. And I was still riddled with shame and anxiety and guilt and lack of self-love and didn't trust anybody. My trust for anyone was non-existent except for my family. And so we started on this journey on on the tour and um, I made lots of mistakes again, but I also learned lots along the way. And then we went, we finally got to, I think it was Tuscany, and I just the loneliness that I felt within myself because I didn't love who I was. Mm. I didn't feel I had a connection with anyone on the bus. Everyone had all their friends that they were travelling with. There was only maybe three or four other people that were travelling alone. It was so gut-wrenchingly hard to see everyone else sharing in these wonderful moments and I felt so on the outside. Just like I'd done as a kid on the farm, I felt on the outside. And... It was a quiet, quiet day and we were driving through these amazing sunflower fields and I wanted to shout at the top of my lungs, look at this, share this with me, but everyone was asleep. And I looked up over the seats of the bus and I saw another girl do the same thing, looking up over the seats of the bus and I motioned to her to come come up here, I've got a spare seat. And so she came and sat down next to me. And that connection was what I had always dreamt of. We instantly started talking. She was like my kindred spirit. It was like Anne of Green Gables and Diana Berry mm. from Anne of Green Gables. It was the most wonderful connection and there was no judgment. There was no expectations. There was just appreciation of who each other were and we instantly connected. And she's still my best friend to this day. Mm, I love that. We're, yeah, it's beautiful. And, and uh, I, Can I just say like, what yeah. what gave you the courage at that moment to 
like to even say, come up here. I don't know what gave you that courage. I just, I was just so lonely and so desperate to talk Mm. to someone or experience something amazing with someone else that I, and I hadn't spoken to her at all on the trip and she'd not spoken to me and something within me knew that I had to say, come up here. Mm. And um, I, I did that and that's, I'm very grateful that I did that. That's great. And as the trip progressed, we would spend more time together. I finally started to feel that maybe it's okay to be me. Maybe it's mm-hmm. okay to have had made mistakes and I'm learning all these things about myself and maybe this is going to be okay. I started to make some other friends. But with inside me, there was this constant picturing of a bad feeling, like a intuitively bad feeling like my stomach was like doing little somersaults and roller coaster rides and I just kept pushing it down and thinking oh it doesn't matter it doesn't mean anything I don't even know what's going on I'm just I'm just ignoring it when I got to Switzerland by now I had really I really started to find my own way and it was the first time I'd seen snow I know you're from America there's no snow here There was no snow where I grew up. And we went up to the Jungfrau in the Swiss Alps. It's the highest train station in the world. And there's a beautiful glacier there. And we go up on the train. It's a clogged train. And we get up to the top of this mountain and I hold this snow in my hands Mm. for the very first time. And I look at these mountains and I look at the glacier and I think if these mountains have stood the test of time, if they have withstood blizzards and dinosaurs and humankind building train stations at the top of a mountain, then maybe I can do this thing called life. Maybe I can be as big as this mountain. Mm. And it was the first time I felt self-love in so many years. It was so liberating And that night I didn't drink anything. I didn't need to hide who I was. I didn't need to be anything other than me. Mm. And I was okay with that. I was loving it. I called my dad and said, I'm having the best time. Tomorrow we're going canyoning. I can't wait. It's going to be amazing. And then the next day we're going canyoning. So canyoning is an adventure sport. It's like in the side of a mountain and you make your way down through the water. Um, We would call it a creek here. I don't know what you call it in the States, but um, just like, yeah, it's like a very narrow ravine, water going down, and you you jump, slide, use abseiling equipment, jump into water holes, get to the bottom of it. And uh, most people who were going canyoning didn't actually know what canyoning was. They all thought we were going canoeing. It's not canoeing (laughs) at all. I was standing there and we were getting ready. We had our life vests on, full water, uh, wetsuit, water shoes, helmets. And there was a girl standing next to me and she was from another bus group. So it was an extracurricular activity. Not everybody had to do this particular activity. And there were two busloads of people who had chosen to go and join to do this one group activity. I didn't know the girl standing next to me and she had a wedding ring on. And Kentucky Tours were very renowned for partying, lots of sex, lots of alcohol, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And I thought, why would someone who is married come on a Kentucky tour? Because I think there was one married couple on our bus load and I, I just thought that's it was like a singles thing. Yeah. Like it was known as a singles thing. And I was like, why would someone wear a wedding ring? And her friend said to her, um, what are you doing? And she put, was putting a Band-Aid over her wedding ring. Uh-huh. And she said to her friend, because if anything happens, I want everyone to know that I was married and her body has never been found. Mm. I'll never, ever forget that. It just, it's almost, and as I was standing there and my stomach was by now doing absolute somersaults and I felt so overwhelmingly sick, almost to the point where I thought I have to sit down, I can't stand up. And I thought to myself, does she feel unwell like I do? Does she have a feeling as well that something's not right? But I just ignored it. Interesting. And we got on the bus. I went up to the top of the canyon and my expectations at this point were that we're going to have an amazing time and it was going to be 
wild and and I was making plans for getting back to London and I was worked out where I was going to stay and I, everything was going to be all right. I was going to get a job and I was going to backpack around. I was going to go to Morocco at some point. I was going to skydive and, you know, the world was my oyster. I was invigorated with life. And we did uh, the first jump and this water was amazing. It was crystal clear. It's melted snow. Like it's in the middle of summer there. So it was freezing cold but beautiful. It was like the Garden of Eden. There was just pristine moss and trees and it was like dappled light but it was raining. It was sprinkling. And I knew that it was going to rain a lot because I got really curly hair and when it rains a lot my hair goes really, really frizzy and I look like a golden poodle. <laughs> I just didn't realise that where the massive rain was was at the top of the mountain where the canyon began. So we made our way down through the canyon. We're having the most amazing time and we got halfway and I was standing about the third jump and I was standing next to a girlfriend and I noticed that the water had changed. It had changed from they'd gone to a murky, muddy brown. It was revolting. It was covered in leaves and it was rising really fast and those beautiful moments of the crystal clear water had gone. It had gone to like from my ankle to my knee in a matter of moments. Mm. And I said to my friend standing next to me, why is the water rising? And she said, I don't know. And then the guide yelled out to us, we need to move fast. So I took that next jump and it was about a four-metre jump into a tiny water hole. There was another guide waiting for me at the bottom. When I entered into the water, the sound was like thunder. It was so, so, so loud. And as I came up for air, and the only way I came up for air was because of my life vest because the current was getting so strong. And the guide reached out to grab me and our hands slipped past each other and I was pulled under the rapids. And it was in that moment that a four-metre wall of water came down and killed most of my group. There were three of us that survived out of 12. Oh, wow. And I was the last person to speak to my friend, which was, that's always been really hard to deal with that. Then I was sucked under the rapids and I just heard my father's voice. I could hear him saying to me, if ever you get caught in floodwaters, just relax and stay calm. And I'd grown up in the country. We had lots of floods, lots of droughts. And I instantly just let my body go. I surrendered my entire body. I didn't feel fear. I didn't feel worried. I didn't feel anxious. I simply relaxed, almost like being in a meditative state and just tried to focus on getting air when I could. And I kept coming up for snippets of air, but my mouth would only sort of just, or my face would only just get to the surface and then I'd be dragged back under again. It was like being in a front loader washing machine, completely out of control. And then I was eventually pushed up by a giant log, which was a bit wider than a metre wide, and it pushed me into this giant boulder and it was the first time that I actually saw what I was amongst. And the water was lapping at my chin and there was logs and branches and entire boulders were moving with this force of this water. And I saw on my right bodies floating peacefully over the rapids and I knew that they had died and looked over to my left and I saw the bank and it was still beautiful and natural and green but it was just too far away and I knew that I would never make it and in that moment I could have only maybe only been there for 30 seconds if that but it was like a slow motion moment and my entire life played out to me like a series of snapshots Mm. and I saw moments of my life when I'd been a child I'd been very badly bullied as a little girl I had kids pin me down and measure parts of my body because they thought that I was longer than them or taller than them or bigger than them. And I saw that moment of me lying in the playground being pinned down by all those kids. I saw me as a teenager who felt that I didn't belong and that I wasn't part of the cool group. I saw moments of when I was in that relationship and the toxicity of it and just how bad it got. And I thought to myself, I don't ever want to be that person again. And then I saw the moment of the day before on the mountain with the snow. Mm -hmm. And I went, I am never, ever, ever being that girl again. I'm never letting anyone treat me badly. I'm never letting anyone tell me that I'm not worthy. I'm never letting anyone tell me that my life isn't worth something. 
It's worth something. And my new friends accept me for all of me, even all the broken pieces of me. And I choose life. And if I stay here, I'm going to get hit in the head by another log or be crushed by a boulder. And I don't want to be left knowing that I had been that girl. And so I wiggled a bit and I let go and I got sucked under the rapids again. And it came to a point where I thought, this is it. I don't have any air left. I just cannot hold my breath any longer. And I prayed. I prayed to God and I prayed to my aunt who had died previously. And I said, please, dear God, please, Arnie, die. Don't let me die because if I die, mum won't cope. <laughs> and you both know that. Both yeah. God and, <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Mothers are such an important part of our life. Oh. And magically, I don't know if it was a wave or an angel or God or what it was, but I spurt up out of the water Like someone had grabbed onto the shoulders of my life jacket and ripped me up out of the water and I took this massive gulp of air and I saw what was about to go over and it was an absolutely giant waterfall, absolutely enormous. There's a photo of it on my website. Someone had taken a photo, which is unbelievable. And going over that waterfall was a bit like feeling a free fall flight. I actually don't know how I survived. And then when I came up for air again, I was in this tiny little alcove, pristine water, flat, no rapids. The entry point to this alcove was maybe a metre wide and I tried to make my way over to the edge but my legs wouldn't work. So I used my arms and I sort of did a breaststroke manoeuvre to get to the edge and I kept grabbing onto the grass and I was trying desperately to get out and pull myself up and I just couldn't grab onto anything because it was all wet from the rain. And then a pair of feet arrived sort of at my eyes because my head was, I was barely... I was barely able to just even bob up and down. Like it was only the life jacket that was stopping me from sinking. I was so exhausted. And this person tried to grab me and pull me out, but I actually had a massive big branch stuck through my life vest. So I wiggled back down into the water, pulled it back out, and then he yanked me up onto the edge. And as I looked up, I saw that it was one of my friends that had survived. And I was lay there and I was panting. And then I became like, the adrenaline kicked in. I was like a soldier in combat. And a person, I jumped up. A person could come from nowhere. I don't even know who it was. I was covered in mud and debris and like I looked like a scary mud lady. Mm-hmm. And this person said, come with me and I'll take you to safety. And so we followed this person and we climbed up the side of a mountain and it was incredibly steep. And we held onto trees and ropes and whatever we could. And by now it was like a mudslide. And we made our way to the top. When we got up to the road, the person who had led us up there looked at me and he started crying and he said, oh, my God, you're the one that I couldn't hang on to. It was the guide that was at the waterhole waiting for me where our hands slipped past each other. And we made our way down the road and we came to the scene of a rescue attempt, but I knew that they were already too late. So there was 21 young people that died that day. Mm. Three of them were guides and 18 participants. 14 were Australians. It was the largest death of Australians outside of war times at the time of the event. There was media everywhere. There was over 200 journalists waiting outside our chalet. There were six of us that were taken to hospital. I had a broken leg and my leg was split in half from my ankle to my knee. I had four broken ribs. I had particles of rib floating around. That was from when the log crushed me against the boulder. I had dislocated jaw, which I've since had surgery on. I had soft tissue damage to both of my legs, which still caused me trouble most days. And my pancreas got damaged. So I'm now type 1 diabetic on an insulin pump. And I had PTSD and survivor's guilt for a very, very long time. But I sought the right help. And I was able to move on and live an amazing, normal, extraordinary life. Oh, my goodness. That is an amazing story. And you got out. I got out. You got out of so much. Yeah. Wow. So then what happened? Now I have to know, what happened? Did you come back? Did you come back to Australia then? Or how did that? So, um, 
the, the press was very intense and we were held like hostages in our chalet we, after we got back from hospital. My injuries actually weren't diagnosed until I got back to Australia a couple of months later. When they did all the x-rays, it was too soon after they'd broken and so nothing showed up. I was in shock. We were all in shock. It was, it was horrific. Eventually the Swiss police allowed us to go because it was now a crime scene and so we all had to have investigations done and councillors were brought in and but we weren't allowed to leave for a period of time and getting back to London is a very big blur so I had all those broken bones and damage to my body and no pain relief at all oh my goodness and so I pretty much slept it was the only way that I could really deal with anything and I remember getting on the plane my body swelled up I was really swollen and I couldn't fit any of my clothes I couldn't fit my shoes. I remember walking on the plane in London to come back home to Australia because I knew that I knew I needed to be taken care of and I would have to go home. And I was angry about that. I was angry that I couldn't finish my trip. I was angry that no one else could finish their trip. I was angry that they died. I was angry that I'd stayed alive. And it actually was at that point where I thought it would have been so much easier if I had have just died. Yeah. I was absolutely certain that death would have been easier than dealing with everything that I was dealing with. When we got off the plane in Australia, we got off in Sydney and we were escorted out by the police because, well, actually by the Secret Service, because the intensity of the media was so bad. So the heli- there were helicopters hovering all over our family farm and news crews down the street of our property. And I lived in the country. I did not live somewhere. It wasn't like I was, you know, in a right. suburb of the city. I was a long way away. And I refused to talk to anybody. I refused to talk at all. And I remember getting off the plane and these Secret Service, they had like their spy yeah. talking places and they're like, oh, we've, we've got the package. Yeah. I was like, what the hell is going on? Who are you talking to? And, and we get about- taken through all this. Yeah, it was, it was crazy. We get taken through all these back avenues and passages you'd never know even existed in an airport. And then they opened this door, which looked like a wall. And there was my family standing there. Mm. And my mum always says, I just remember that you had no shoes on and these strange clothes and that your feet were black and blue, like they were just black. I mean, the bruising on my body was, you know, when you see those TV shows where someone's been beaten to death and, you know, the police are trying to work out the crime, Mm -hmm. how the person died in the murder investigation, I looked like that. Mm. And... Everyone was hugging me and no one knew that I had all these broken ribs. <laughs> right. Going, ah! You're like, don't touch me. And um, I, got, I got home and I basically slept because we still didn't know mm-hmm. the extent of my injuries. And I never talked to anybody. I just felt like nobody understood. Mm-hmm. And my mum started to get really worried about me. And mm-hmm. the only person I'd spoken about was this girl called Cassandra, the girl on the bus. Mm-hmm. And so my mum rang this girl. She got her phone number from wherever and she said, hi, you don't know me, but I know you know my daughter Tiffany. And Cassandra said, oh, how is Tiff? And mum said, I don't know what to do with her. You're the only person she'll talk to. Would you please come to Sydney? And she lived in Melbourne. Would you please come to Sydney and see her? And so three hours later we were at the airport picking up Cassandra And it was the first time that I'd cried when I saw her Mm. and it was very emotional. But it was through her love and support and knowing that I had that acceptance no matter what had happened. And her cousin had actually died in the disaster. Yeah. And Cassandra's an amazing girl. She had to identify the bodies and because she was the only blood relative that was there. And so she had her own grief and her own sadness and her own trauma. She didn't come canyoning the day that we went, thank God. But together we somehow navigated this path towards a life that would be amazing Mm -hmm. and we went through the hardest possible time we could ever imagine, but we were there together. And that support and that strength and that love was what got me through. About 12 months after the accident, I realised that my PTSD was indeed significant and I couldn't hold a conversation. I couldn't, um, I was having horrendous flashbacks and the nightmares were just horrific from day dot. And I couldn't answer the phone and then write down something. I couldn't work out how the order of things went. 
Mm. And I had got a job and I was failing at my job because I just couldn't concentrate or focus. So I went back to see my GP that had diagnosed all my injuries and was helping me with all my diabetes and things. And um, she said, I think it's time that you went and saw post-traumatic stress disorder unit at Sydney Westmead Hospital, which is one of the largest post-traumatic stress disorder units in Australia. Mm. And I had at this point in time, I'd met a man who was lovely, nothing at all like the last one. And I said to him, I need to go and do this. And he said, well, I will take you out on the train and and I'll take you out there. So I was in that first appointment. I was so nervous and so scared. I was in there for three hours and this guy sat in a coffee shop for three hours and waited for me. And then he took me home, made sure I was okay, and then he went home. He's now my husband. Uh He's kind of a good guy. Yeah, he's such a good guy. And then life happened. Life happened. Life was, you know, I had my children. I went back to college. I did a new career and then I went back to college again. I got another career. And then a few things happened about four years ago and I realised that the book that was always in me needed to finally come out Hmm. and that I was brave enough now to do it. Hence the title, Brave Enough Now. And so I wrote my story. Oh, I love that. Thank you for sharing that story. Okay, I have questions. That was an amazing story. I mean, not just going through the whole thing in the river and, you know, almost dying. That is a horrible, awful, traumatic experience. But just what led up to it. like Yeah. That whole experience that led up to it. and you're coming to this understanding of who you are, like having a brand new identity, (laughs) like really having this brand new identity of I'm worth it. I'm, my life is worth living. I have something to give to this world and I am good enough for all of that. And we all need to know that. And I think that society sometimes there's things that happen to us all that mold us and we start to think that we're not and that Mm. voice in our head tells us that we're not or other people have told us that we're not yeah we need to believe that we are yeah I want to know about relationships and the impact that it had on your relationships all of that happened and all of that change happened in one you know one fell swoop in you know a very short period of time and that change happened in while you're over in Europe but I'm wondering when you came back you're in pain and all this and everything physically but you had somehow changed internally so how did that impact your relationships and the way that you interacted with other people it was really hard when I first came home like I said I didn't talk I didn't really talk to anybody and I had flowers and phone calls and people coming to the farm And I flatly refused to look at the flowers, take the phone calls, leave my bedroom. And after Cassandra had come, I went back into my shell. There was one girl from from primary school. We were friends from the age of four. Mm -hmm. She's still a dear friend. She came over and it's a bit like this scene was a bit like in the movie that Nicole Kidman and Sandra Bullock are witches. I always think about this because it's funny. She came over, she came into my room when she'd be coming, she'd been staying over at my house since we were, you know, four. Right. <laughs> and she pulled back the covers. She said, get out of bed. You stink. Go and brush your teeth. You're coming out with me. And I was like, no, pull the covers back over. I don't want to. And it was through, it was through that, it was through the sisterhood that got me through it, you know, in those first sure. few months. It was through those friendships. I did go out with her. She was a recruitment officer at the time and she got me my job where I met my husband. <laughs> so, you know, everything falls into place in the end. But it was definitely, it was very, very hard for me to feel like I could connect with another person that understood what I was going through because how could anybody ever understand what I was going through? Mm-mm. And knowing knowing that I would have that forever. I didn't want to feel alone and lonely, but I also had all of the grief and the survivor's guilt and the PTSD. So it really did 
mold me for a long time in how I communicated. Mm-hmm. How did you get through the PTSD? I mean, what was maybe what was one thing or a couple of things that made a big difference for you? It was three things, three amazing tools. So I've journaled all my life mm-hmm. and journaling was really, really important. Getting the right help. Absolutely. I, when I first came home, mum said, I think you better go and see a psychologist. And so I went and saw this lady and she said to me, oh, I've only ever really dealt with divorces, but I'll give it a go. <laughs> well, no, thank you. <laughs> That's not going to work for me. How hard could it be, really? So I never went back to see her, but she did give me one tool that was very, very useful. I'm very creative. I've sold a lot of artwork over my life and I've always done painting and drawing. And she said to me, well, if you're a creative person, maybe you could just try and throw some paint on the paper and just let it out of your system. And so I actually did that. And I painted for a very long time lots of different aspects of how I was feeling and what happened. And um, one of those paintings actually is on my laundry wall. And it's, I look at it every day and I remember how lucky I am to be alive. Mm-hmm. And I thought for a very, very long time as part of the survivor's guilt that, and the PTSD that I needed to live my best life for them, for those people who didn't survive, that didn't make it. I had to be every single thing for them. I had to have big relationships and have be a wonderful mother and be the best I could be at work and be the best I could be at everything. But I, and then I realised one day that actually... I need to be the best for me because once I'm the best for me, then I can be the best for everybody else Mm. and then I can make a difference and then I can help others. But if I don't put me first, then I can never be all of those things. And so that was a massive pivot as well. So the journaling was huge in acknowledging my feelings and how I felt and what was going on and how I was dealing with it and just being completely raw and honest in that. I did burn a few pages. Of course. (laughs) But um, it helps so much to get it out of your system and a lot of people think about journaling or it's too hard and they can't face it, but I needed to have some form of outlet because I really didn't talk about it at all to anybody. So the journaling was huge. The artwork was huge as well. I want to know, was the thing that you didn't talk about, was it just your experience in the canyon or was it? your experience with your relationship that you had had before and all of that? Yeah, it was a combination of both. Mm. So I was dealing with, I was dealing with their relationship stuff as well. And uh, that took me a very long time, a very, very, probably longer to deal with all of that than um, the canyoning stuff, because I did go and have support and help. And I had therapy for many, 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 many years on that and we did touch on the relationship and then I started training after I had my daughter I started training and doing a boxing class and the the trainer said you know think of something that makes you really angry and not much makes me angry I'm pretty I'm very happy I'm constantly in a form of gratitude because I'm like I'm alive yes yes that's good you know? <laughs> amazing I'm alive um and so, you know, particularly by this point in time, I'm alive, I've got a husband and a wife, uh, I'm a wife and I've got a child, it's amazing. And I could, I thought about that relationship. Yeah. And I boxed the hell out of that bag, like <laughs> no tomorrow. And I did that for a very, very, very long time. And then one day I was boxing and she said, come on, get into it. You're not into it today. And I realised that I didn't have any more anger about that. Mm. I'd let it all go. I accepted it. I'd forgiven him. I felt sorry for him mm-hmm. and I had accepted and forgiven myself for staying and for allowing that to happen. That's a big step is for forgiving yourself is a huge step. Huge and freeing. So uh-huh. freeing. Yeah. Okay. I want to know a lesson that you learned through this experience that you could not have learned any other way. My appreciation for life. Oh. Yeah. When you come to almost not be alive. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty close. (laughs) Seriously. So your appreciation for life. Is there anything about yourself that you learned? That I can do anything. Mm, You can. (laughs) I can. There are so many lessons I learned about myself throughout all of that. 
I learned that it's okay to be me Mm -hmm. and it's okay to make mistakes and it's okay to have the bad days and it's okay to have the good days and it's that acceptance of yourself, all of yourself. There's actually, I don't often do this, but there's a beautiful passage in this which I was talking to someone about this the other day. In your book, I would love for you to read part of this book. Yeah, this is just the last page. And I think this sums it up, your question. Okay. Now I have come to know that I no longer need to live my life as if I am living it for those who died. I need to live it just for myself, for all of me, for all the broken parts of me, for all the fixed parts of me, for the me that I am that is whole. A me that I found while finding my way through winding roads with all of them leading home back to me. Oh, I love that. That does sum it up. That's beautiful. Thanks for reading that. I can't wait to read the whole thing. I have actually ordered it. So it's on its way. (laughs) So I, I can't wait. I do have another question about expectations. Like before all of this, you had expectations for life of what it was going to look like. How did it change after that? I mean, where you are now, how has your expectations for life changed? The biggest thing that I learned is that expectations can bring discomfort, disappointment, sadness. So instead of being having expectations, I live more in gratitude. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Because, you know, at the beginning I thought, you know, I'm going to go to university and it's going to be amazing and I'm going to make all these friends and I'm going to learn all these things and none of that happened. Mm. None of that happened. I'm going to fall in love and it's going to be amazing and I'm going to have the happily ever after. I'm going to be Cinderella. That didn't happen. Yeah. I'm going to go overseas and it's going to fix everything and I'm going to keep moving forward and it's going to be amazing and that well, didn't happen either. Mm. And I'm going to go and be on top of a mountain and find myself and then I'm going to go canyoning and it's going to be amazing. Yeah. And so I think all of those things led me to going, you know, I have, I, I have goals in life now. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of goals and I try to work really hard to reach my goals. Mm-hmm. I have steps in place to go, okay, well, this is my top goal. And what do I need to do to get there? And I break them all down. Mm-hmm. But I don't have expectations that well, th- this has to happen. You know, there's lots of flexibility in my life. Like you were running late today, but that's okay. It doesn't matter to me. <laughs> you know, I'm just happy and grateful that we're here. Oh, so I love that. I try really hard not to put expectations on myself. Mm-hmm. And I try really hard not to put expectations on my children as well. And I know that I could probably work a little bit harder on that. Yeah, just living, <laughs> living in the moment and living for having goals, but holding them with an open hand instead of a tight fist, like that is so healthy and hard, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, like um, Eckhart Tolle talks about, you know, in his power of now and, you know, if you're hopping in the car, just take 10 seconds and look at the sky and go, oh, check out that sky, you know, and feel that gratitude. Mm -hmm. And it really does. And I do that all the time. It probably drives my family crazy, but I'll be like, like yesterday morning was the most amazing sunrise, amazing sunrise. And that's my favorite time of day. And I was just like, look at the sun. Just Can you feel it? It's like energizing us and it's giving life to us. And my kids are like, oh, mommy. Again. (laughs) but, but it's it true. is and it's in that moment and not not thinking not expecting that today is going to be the most amazing day and that's how it has to be but this is amazing right now and I'm so grateful right now that I can see the sun I can see this beautiful sunrise this is a blessing this is a gift this is amazing that is such a good way to live those are good words good words I have a couple more questions I really do want to know this. I wanted to know, I was thinking about this question actually when you were telling the story. So I want to go back to that moment when you came home because your aunt had died and you came home and you're looking in the mirror or you're in your room and you're really, you're, you're seeing who you are for reals. 
at that moment. And you're kind of coming to terms with what reality is right now and where you are. If you could go back, like you right now today could go back to talk to that, that sweet girl, what would you tell her? Mm, Good question. I would tell her to eat something. (laughs) For the love of God, just eat something. Eat something. You're too skinny. You're not healthy. Um, I would tell her, oh, so many things I'd tell that girl. But I'd tell her that it's going to be okay. It is going to be okay and that she is brave enough to do what she needs to do. That she has the resilience. She has the power within herself to be everything that she can be. Mm. That's wonderful. And I want to know maybe your top three things that you would want people who are going through any big life change or traumatic experience or just some hard transformational stuff that's happening. What are the top three things that people going through that need to know? They need to know that through all of the hardness and all the difficulty and all the trauma and the hurt and the pain and the suffering, that you need to move through it and that it is going to be hard. It is going to be so hard. But on the other side of that, know that there is another side of that and that you will get through it Mm. with the right help, the right tools, the other side can be a life that you love. Mm. And when you really truly know what you want, you are really able to make the positive changes in your life that you need to make to make that change. The only thing that you can control is who you are. Mm. There is nothing else that you can can control. There's no point in worrying about anything that you have no control over whatsoever Mm. because you can't do anything about it. But what you can do is make positive choices for yourself. And if my story can help inspire someone to make a positive choice, then my job is done. I love that. I know it's inspiring people. Thank you so much for your vulnerability and for just willing to tell the story and for being here and telling the story. And oh my gosh, so many things. So before I ask you, though, the last three questions I ask everybody on my podcast, I would love for you to tell everybody about your book, about where we can find you, how they can get in touch with you, what all you're doing right now, all that stuff. Fantastic. So my everything's on my website, tiffanyjohnson.com.au. You can get my book on the website or you can also go to Amazon, Brave Enough Now, an inspirational story of self-discovery, survival and hope. So that's on Amazon or you can also get it on my website. I have signed copies that I send all over the world if that's something that takes your fancy. I also have a podcast called When We Are Brave. It's available on every platform known to man for podcasts and uh, that is so much fun it shares inspirational stories and conversations plus tips and tricks on how you can live your best and bravest life because every day we have to be brave in our life and Mm -hmm. I just want to help empower people to know that they can be brave in every single thing that they do whether that's getting up in the morning changing their job telling someone that they love them that they can do it to empower people to be their authentic self and to be brave in doing so. So that's um, the people can find me there. I am on Facebook. I am on at Tiffany Johnson at Brave Enough Now. I am on Instagram. I'm on Twitter, LinkedIn. You can find me everywhere. Everywhere. I'm everywhere. (laughs) Well, I will put all of that in the show notes and uh, the link to your Amazon book and also your website and all that stuff. So people can check out everything in the show notes. So thanks again for sharing all that. I'm going to ask you the three things. So now I ask everybody these questions and you might've already shared this event, but maybe there's a different one. But the first question is a pivotal event that changed you. So it could be what you shared today, or it could be something different. I would say the moment in the canyon when I was stuck between the log and the boulder. Sure. That was a pivotal event. That was a life or death moment and you chose life. Yeah. Yeah. It's beautiful. 
the next one is a person who changed you. Oh, I know there have been so many. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, you've already said a bunch of people. I know. That's right. I would say that my husband, my amazing husband, he is, he's the most incredible human being. He is intelligent. He's beyond intelligent. He's so, so smart. Hmm. And But his emotional intelligence is amazing. He's kind. He's compassionate. He's thoughtful. He's, he's been my rock throughout mm. everything for the past 20 years. And he has helped mold me in encouraging me and uplifting me to be who I am. And I would also say Cassandra, my best friend as well. That's great. Yeah. And two- he makes me laugh a lot, which is great. <laughs> You're two people. Laughing so important. I love that. Okay, the last one is a book that changed you. Oh, I know you put this in the questions and I was like, <laughs> one book. I know. I think when Wild came out by Cheryl Strait, and I know lots of people don't like Wild, but I love Wild. Okay. I read that book rather quickly. I was in Hong Kong and I was travelling with my mum at the time we were working together and this is a fair while ago. And I just connected so many things with her from my own story uh-huh. and it made me believe that I too could write my journey and my story uh, subconsciously, I think, um, because at that point in time it wasn't really on my radar. When I came for, when I first came back to Australia, I was like I should write a story about everything that's happened and I started to but it was so raw and so sure. hard and I just I couldn't bring myself to do it. And I remember reading that book and I was lying in this hotel room in Hong Kong and I remember having this, you know, like a light bulb moment, like uh-huh. that intuition going, <gasps> that buzzy feeling uh-huh. <gasps> and um, I mean it's a beautiful story and what she went through and the hardship and the trauma and the grief of losing her mother Yeah, and I understand, I could understand what she was, unfortunate I haven't lost my mother but I could totally understand everything that she was going through because I had been through something just as traumatic. Yeah, that I will put the link to that book in my show notes for sure. Thank you again for joining me. And Oh my goodness. I feel like we're like besties now. This is really, I love hearing your story and thank you. It was very sweet. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I've absolutely loved it. I'm sure we are going to continue to connect some more and um, I look forward to that. So have a really great, great day tomorrow. It's tomorrow there, but it's really, yeah. Have a great day today. You lovely evening yesterday. Okay, I will. <laughs> All right. Thanks again. Yeah, thanks, Wendy. I felt so blessed to get an opportunity to talk with this precious woman. Don't you just want to be friends with her and sit and have tea and let her speak into your life? That story is so breathtaking. You know, at the end of interviews, I always find one thing that sticks out to me and share it with you as a wrap up. It's usually really easy for me, but this time it was really hard. There's so many things about her story that needed to be highlighted, I thought. I landed, though, on one thing that she talks about at the end. She had met her friend on the tour, and through that friendship, she was able to really know that she was worthy of love and belonging and living a different and whole life. And then that friend, when Tiffany's mom called her, got on a plane and flew to see her within three hours. Did you catch that? Who does that? I mean, she dropped everything and went to see her friend who needed her. She just did it without even thinking. This is a good friend. And then she met a man, a man who drove her to an appointment that was scary for her and she needed support. And that man went and just waited three hours for an appointment to be over and then just drove her home. Now that's a good man, right? What I thought about was how Tiffany's willingness to choose to leave her abusive relationship and say she didn't want to be that person anymore. The person who put up with people treating her as if she wasn't important or as if she didn't matter. When she found enough strength to be brave enough to expect more, 
She found people to give her more, who loved her for who she was, who saw her. She was able to draw lovely people to her because she saw the beauty in herself. And then they were able to reflect that beauty right back to her. It's so hard to see the beauty in yourself, I know, when you're surrounded by people who can't see past their own stuff enough to see you, the real you. It is so hard to let go and trust that you are worth loving and worthy of precious love like those two friends showed to her. It takes courage and strength and being brave enough to let go of the known in hopes of something better that you don't even know is out there. So my words to you today, if you're in that place, is to take the leap. Just trust that you are worthy of love and belonging. You are worth more. You don't need to settle. Whether this is in your personal life or your professional life, wherever it is, don't settle for just what you know. Find your courage and go find the life you want. Go create and fight for the life that you were made for. I'm so glad you joined us. Make sure to subscribe so you can get all the episodes and you can help support our podcast by clicking the support button in the show notes or going to our website, essentiallybetterlife.com. Follow me on social at Essentially Better Life and check out my website for all kinds of information on business and personal coaching, my book, and even some great stuff on essential oils. Thanks for listening. Blessings and be well, my friends.